Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Welcome back. This time we are joined once again by Dr. Neil Barnard. Um, If you remember from the last episode, he's a New York Times bestselling author, clinical researcher, health advocate, and really uh, someone who's, I would say, making great strides in helping us understand how to take better care of our brains. So this is kind of a, you know, a two-parter in the sense of I want to just carry on exploring where we got to last time. So just to recap, we, we covered some things like saturated fats, trans fats, the sugar Cargo Health and Aging Project as well. And also, obviously, you know, genetic mutation. And if that helps impact uh, your likelihood to get Alzheimer's and some of the myth busting around there. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about vitamin E. So how much does that reduce your risk of developing Alzheimer's? And you know, how much should people be consuming? Yeah, this has been an interesting thing. This was also a finding in Chicago where researchers started first focusing just on things like saturated fat. And the moral of that story was, of course, get the bacon off your plate, get away from the cheese and that kind of thing. But then they looked further and they started to discover that there was a role for vitamin E. Vitamin E comes in many different forms, eight different forms. But what researchers discovered is that those people who were getting not very much vitamin E in the course of the day, the the, the actual amount was about four milligrams a day, 4.2 milligrams to be exact. They didn't do so well. When they compared the people who were getting just a little bit more, 7.6, so call it about double, uh, around four to the high sevens, the people getting more vitamin E cut their risk of Alzheimer's by about 50%. Now, what that means is if we add this up, I'm avoiding the bad fat, and that's going to cut my risk. And it's, it's not just about avoiding things. It's about what you're taking in. When you take in vitamin E, you're cutting your risk too. So these effects are probably additive, if not synergistic. And I am inclined to believe that if we put together all the things that we know to do, we could, in theory, reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by as much as 80%. Should people be supplementing vitamin E? Should they get it from their foods? What do you recommend? Well, there are foods that that have some, like broccoli and spinach and sweet potatoes have a little bit, and there are some foods that have a lot. And these are really the nuts and the seeds, uh, walnuts, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, that kind of thing. The problem with it is that these also tend to be the fattier foods and because vitamin E is a fat-soluble vitamin. So I would suggest that a person should not feel a need to have an enormous bag of walnuts, for example. Um, Maybe a small handful, roughly 30 grams a day, would would about do it. Uh, What does that look like? Take your hand, put the nuts in your hand, and before they touch the fingers, that's about an ounce, about 30 grams. And then the other thing, here's the other key, is don't eat it yet. Because if you do, frankly, nuts are so addicting, you're going to fill your hand again and have more and more and more. And so what I would do instead is take that handful of nuts, crumble it up, and put it on your morning porridge or put it on your salad. I like to use nuts as an ingredient rather than as a snack food in and of themselves because when you do that, you get the benefit without being so likely to overdo it. We should say a word about vitamin B12. 
One of the things that, that needs to be said about it is it's a very strange, strange vitamin. It's not made by animals. It's not made by plants. Vitamin B12 is made by bacteria. And many people speculate that before the advent of modern hygiene, the bacteria in the soil or that would be, or that would be on vegetables or maybe even on our hands, maybe even in our mouths, would create the tiny trace of B12 that we need. We need about... 2.4 micrograms per day is the RDA. It's, it's minuscule. I have to say, I think that's a very um, unreliable source. Now, mediators do get B12 sometimes because there is B12 produced by the bacteria in a cow's gut, for example. So it will get into the meat. But very often they run low. And the reason that they're running low is the B12 is stuck to the protein and you can't pull it off without adequate stomach acid. If you're over 50, you might not be making much acid. If you're taking an acid-blocking drug because of your stomach pain, you're not pulling the B12 off and you're going to get deficient. Certain other medications like metformin will get in the way as well. And this is where B12 supplementation comes in in a really good way. And so I recommend that everybody include B12 as a supplement, regardless of diet. There are lots of different forms of supplements, but they work. And the big worry I have is if a person says, don't take any supplements at all, you know, they're not natural. Wait a minute, you don't live in nature. <laughs> you, know, you live in New Jersey or you live in Brighton or wherever you live. You are not necessarily eating the things that we might have eaten millions of years ago when we were working our way along in, in Eastern Africa. It's fascinating because it's one of those things you hear it a lot, especially if you're vegan or vegetarian. Obviously, everyone knows about B12, but don't often get a lot of good detail on why that's important or what the story is behind it. So that's really helpful. Thank you. So what about other other nutrients that you think are essential? So specifically in line with the with, with the idea for prevention as much as possible, of course, for Alzheimer's and dementia. So we've mentioned B12, we've mentioned vitamin E. I think we want to think about a couple of other nutrients, not so much with regard to overdoing it on them, but sort of underdoing it on them. And let me just mention a couple. Back in the 1950s and 60s, iron was something that everybody was promoting. You should get it as red meat or maybe um, take iron pills. And then researchers discovered something really troubling, that too much iron was as dangerous as too little that if you had too much iron, it appears to increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease as well as increasing the risk of heart disease. Same thing with copper. You need a tiny bit of copper for metabolic health. If you have too much, it's associated with Alzheimer's too. And then aluminum came along and it's still controversial, but it is a known neurotoxin, but it's something that's in a lot of things. It's in a lot of antacids. It's an additive used in many different things. And I think frankly, people should be avoiding it completely. What am I saying? I'm saying that iron, you need just a little bit, the amount of green vegetables, and you don't need too much. I don't think it should be added as a supplement at all, except in very rare cases where people need it for iron deficiency anemia. Uh, same with copper. You need a tiny little amount that will come from your plant foods too. You should, we don't need too much of that. And aluminum, I would suggest avoiding completely. What roles do alcohol and caffeine play in Alzheimer's risk then? Probably a mixed role. With regard to alcohol, there is a fair amount of evidence, and I'm inclined to give it some credibility, that people who have modest amounts of alcohol on almost more or less daily basis, by modest I mean maybe a drink a day, something like that, do have less risk of heart disease and also less risk of Alzheimer's disease. However, 
it should be remembered that alcohol has lots of problems too. It does increase the risk of cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, and lots of other forms. It's addicting. It has ruined people's lives. And so not to be trifled with, but uh, for people who consume modest amounts of alcohol, I'm prepared to believe that it does reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I'm always hesitant to say that because anything that people just really kind of get hooked on and love, there's a phenomenon of publication bias where the articles that show it's good for you tend to tend to come forward and the ones that don't uh, resonate that tend to get lost. So, But but I think the evidence is, is probably reasonable on it. With regard to caffeine, it's, it's a funny thing. Why caffeine should be good for the brain, I have no idea. But researchers have found that people who drink a fair amount of coffee have less risk of cognitive decline later in life. A fair amount is about five cups a day. That's a lot. Now, caffeine is a mixed bag, too. Um, it will make you jittery. It will change your personality. It will interfere with sleep. Um, on the other hand, people habituate to most of those things. So, And I'm not a coffee drinker, so I'm not cheerleading for it from any personal inclination. But I, but I have to say that the literature has been rather striking, that there are despite the downsides, there are benefits that people get from coffee. And we think it's probably not the bean. It's probably the caffeine that's, that's actually doing that. What also matters about the coffee is what you add to it. You can go to your local uh, barista and you can get a latte, which is frankly only half coffee. The rest of it is some kind of is milk products. And milk happens to be the number one source of saturated fat. And that's going to harm your brain. So um, make it vegan. Uh, put in some soy milk or something like that. Skip the uh, the animal-derived milks. And by the way, skip the coconut milks and the palm oils and that kind of stuff. They're saturated fats too, I'm sorry to say. So, Neil, I know that when we were talking last time as well, you were mentioning this amazing study about menopause, Alzheimer's and the brain. That is the layman term for it. Can you take us into some of the technical aspects of what you've discovered? Yes. The problem is that at, at, at menopause, for many women, as the ovaries stop releasing an egg, that's what menopause is all about, um, suddenly their body goes through a, just a tsunami of symptoms. You feel like you're just not yourself, but the, the most worrisome symptom of all for many women is hot flashes. She's sitting in a meeting and all of a sudden her body temperature goes way up. She starts sweating. She's, she feels like she needs to take a shower and this is happening four or five, six, ten times a day. And when it happens at night, you just don't get a good night's sleep. What's that going to do to the brain? We learned a long time ago that if the brain does not get the slow wave sleep at the beginning of the night and the REM sleep towards morning, you have poorer emotional control and you also tend to lose words and names and your, your, your brain doesn't have the sleep it needs to integrate things. So women will go see their doctors. And the doctors will often prescribe hormone replacement, which used to be thought of as perhaps a means of reducing Alzheimer's. However, as, as time went on, it looks like it may do the opposite. So we decided we would do a diet trial. We drew on uh, epidemiologic studies, women in Japan, particularly before westernization, when the diet was rice, and tofu, and that kind of thing. Very, very little hot flashes. Not, they didn't even have a word for hot flashes. We brought in a large group of women and asked half of them to do a completely plant-based diet, but we went two steps further. We kept oils really low, and we also added a half a cup of cooked soybeans every day. 
And within 12 weeks' time, 60% of the women were completely free of all moderate to severe hot flashes. For the group as a whole, they were cut by 84%. And it was absolutely life-changing for many people. The peculiar thing was when you look at prior studies, a plant-based diet is great for your heart. It's great for reducing cancer risk. But the effect on hot flashes was sort of modest. And then if you looked at what soybeans would do, tofu or whatever, good in many ways, but the effect on hot flashes, kind of modest too. But this combination of a plant-based diet and the soybeans together was not modest. It was dramatic. And I think we know why. The first is that the soybeans have isoflavones. Uh, One is called daidzine. These are just natural compounds in the soy that have an anti-hot flash effect like medicine. However, the diet changes your gut microbiome. It changes the bacteria in your gut. Within about two weeks' time, you now have gut bacteria that take those soy isoflavones, transform them to their most powerful forms, feed them into the bloodstream, and they then are able to be supercharged and extra powerful. That's what we believe is going on. So we are now wanting to not only explore this combination of healthy nutrients and foods and a healthy gut microbiome that can use those nutrients in a way that another person can't. But we're also looking at one other thing. The population that frankly has hot flashes that are the most disturbing are not a 52-year-old or 53-year-old woman who's having a natural menopause. It's a 32-year-old woman who's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And premenopausal breast cancer is, is treated with hormone hormonal treatments, among other treatments, that cause menopause to come rapidly and suddenly. And so here you have a woman who's, who's young, she's in the absolute prime of life, feeling great, gets a diagnosis of a potentially fatal illness. She goes to her doctor and the doctor says, I have to give you this treatment, which then instantly causes massive hot flashes. She feels terrible. She can't sleep. She thinks she's going to die. She's worried about her children and she, there is no treatment for it. That's where diet comes in. Amazing. And what about things like DHA, omega 3 and EPAs? What are the suggestions for that? The old idea, which, which may be true, is that if you get uh, plant foods, you will get the ALA, alpha-linolenic acid, that your brain can lengthen into EPA and DHA. However, the new research is, or newer research is showing that that conversion process is pretty slow, and that's leading people to say, well, I can do a supplement, and a supplement is going to give me the DHA that my brain needs. We always encourage people to have the the plant-based DHAs, which are now widely available and good to have. And and just to be clear, sorry, that's algae or algae, as you say in the States, right? That's exactly right. Amazing. Okay. So Dr. Neil, where can people actually find you? Here at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine in Washington, DC. Our website is pcrm.org. Nice and simple. Dr. Neil Barnard, it's been a massive pleasure. Thank you so much for your insights and also for succinctly summarising all that research over many years into these lovely, simple messages we can understand. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. Did you know Heights started as a newsletter that I've written every week for years? I'm still doing it, and I'd love it to reach your inbox too. So, for weekly science-backed emails on the best ways to take care of your most important organ all in under three minutes, sign up at yourheights.com forward slash Sundays. See you next week.